Revelation chapter 15. As you're making your way there by way of introduction, maybe you remember the news story. It was, uh, it was about a year ago, last, I think it was July 4th weekend. And uh, there was a family that was at a park in Santa Ana, and uh, they had their four-year-old son, and he got separated from their group. And, uh, and it became really serious. It was, you know, it was at sunset, and he'd been at the playground with a bunch of, you know, siblings and cousins and whatever, and, and somebody supposed to be watching him wasn't watching him. At any rate, mom notices it right as the sun's going down. They've they got the police involved. They've got a helicopter in the air with the loudspeaker looking for the kid, <clears throat> and nobody can find him. And thank God for a guy named Miguel Luna. He heard the helicopter and heard the announcement, and he actually saw a kid. It was like a mile from the park, and he saw a kid that matched the description, and there was a shady-looking dude that was holding this kid's hand. It looked like the kid had been crying. And, and so eventually, you know, he talked to his boss. He's like, I think, I think that's the kid, whatever. So they decided to get involved, and thank God that they did. This guy put up a fight, and he was, you know, obviously not a good guy, and just polite company for Sunday. They subdued him uh, in a way that every man here would think that he should be subdued and would like to be in on that action kind of thing. God forgive us, but... Um, <laughs> so they subdue this guy, and, and, and yeah, he's, it's the kid, and they reunite him with mom. I mean, every mom's nightmare, you know? Now, it's a cool story uh, because the kid was rescued, and the guy, you know, he's currently standing trial for this thing. So, so you know, we're grateful. The, the kid is rescued, the child is rescued, and the perpetrator who's got it coming to him is getting it coming to him. And so for that, we, we like stories with good endings. Revelation 15 is kind of like that uh, in the sense that we see God's children rescued and we see those who got what's coming to them getting what's coming to them. So Revelation 15 verse 1, John continues here. He says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. He's got the seven last plagues. He's, this is the continuation of God's wrath being poured out on unrepentant world. He describes it as another sign. He says, then I saw another sign. In, in the original language, the idea here is a token of the future. That's, that's what, what he's seeing here. And, and the idea here is that it's a glimpse into yet another part of the future outworking of God's plan. Truly, that's what the book of Revelation is all about. If you're just joining us, it's kind of hard to jump in the middle of a book and, and really get your head around what's going on. So just bring you up to speed really quickly. Revelation 15, it's the smallest chapter in the book of Revelation. Only eight verses. We'll cover them this morning. Um, we're, we're more than halfway through the book here. And, and the, the name Revelation, it, it, it actually comes from the Greek word apocalypsis. We get the word apocalypse from that. And we think in our modern day, we hear apocalypse, we think, you know, that it's chaos and catastrophe. And, and it's really, that's not the meaning of, of, of apocalypse. Apocalypse actually means unveiling. And now we, we ascribe the definition of chaos and catastrophe because of the events that we read about in Revelation. Which, if you reject God, when God pours out his wrath, it looks like chaos and catastrophe. But it's really just an unveiling of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so we see 
And we see here in Revelation 15, we see God's holiness, which is, which is, is pure and righteous, but we also see his wrath, which is equally pure and righteous, as we'll see. And, and so Revelation, it's unveiling, and that's the whole idea of this book, the person and the work of Jesus Christ being unveiled, his, his plan being unveiled. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus there appeared to John. He gave him a vision, and here's what he instructed him to do. He said, write the things which you've seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Now, that one verse gives us the outline of the entire book. Um, We have there, first of all, he says, write the things which you have seen. This is speaking of the vision that John had of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. Well, the next thing he says is, write about the things which are. And, And this speaks of the state of the church in John's present Day, and then he 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 and he writes about that in Revelation chapter two, chapter three. Also has implications for our church today. But that's the things which are, and then the final thing Jesus told him to write about was the things which will take place after this, and that speaks of the tribulation of the last days. And and so this is the things that Jesus is giving John visions of, these tokens of the future. He's giving him visions, which John writes about, Revelation chapter 4 through Revelation chapter 22. And so this is the idea. Now, all of this together, this is the revelation of God of what's going to come. We call this the tribulation period. It's a seven-year period of time when God's wrath is going to be poured out upon mankind. And in the, in the tribulation and in this book, what happens is the, as it unfolds, there's three sets of seven that we have to pay attention to. There's seven seals, there's seven trumpets, and there's seven bowls. And we have looked at the seals and the trumpets. We saw that the, the seven seals there, these three sets of seven making up the entire tribulation period, What happens, Jesus takes the title deed of the earth in Revelation chapter 6 and it's got seven seals on it. And as he removes each seal, well, what happens is it unveils a progressively increasing wrath of God that's being poured out. So each seal progressively unleashes his judgment and his wrath. And the first six seals come off in order and then there's this pause And then the seventh seal is broken, and the seventh seal, when it's broken, it reveals the contents of the the, uh, title deed of the earth, Um, and this begins the next set of seven, the seven trumpets, seven trumpet judgments. And again, there's a progressive unleashing of God's wrath with each blow of the trumpet, and as with the seals, the first six trumpets go in order, then there's another pause... And then within the seventh trumpet, as the seventh seventh trumpet sounds, there's another set of seven. And that other set of seven begins the final seven bold judgments of God being poured out. And that's what we have in view here in Revelation chapter 15. John begins here with this vision of seven angels holding these seven bowls which contain the last plagues that are going to be poured out on earth. Now, these last plagues are the granddaddy of all plagues. They, these are what Jesus talked about in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 24, when he said this, he said, unless those days were cut, would be cut short, nobody on earth would survive. 
In other words, these plagues are true earth killers. You watch Discovery Channel, and they talk about you know, an asteroid coming to the earth, and this is an earth killer. Well, these plagues are true earth killers. Now, curiously, John describes them here as great, this sign. He says it's a great and marvelous sign. The sign is these plagues that are coming. He says it's great and it's marvelous. And that word marvelous, here's what it literally means. It means marvelously wonderful beyond human comprehension. Marvelously wonderful beyond human comprehension. Jesus used the same word when he was talking about people's reaction when they discover that, that he's the savior, that he's the cornerstone that the building rejected. He said that, that this is when people are going to say this is marvelous in our sight. This marvelously wonderful beyond human comprehension thing. Now, I can think of a lot of ways to describe world-ending plagues, but marvelously wonderful is probably not what I would use to describe it. Um, And what we need to understand here is that what's marvelously wonderful is that God's judgments are just as holy as His grace. God's righteous judgment, even God's perfect wrath, is just as holy just as pure as the grace and mercy that he shows in Jesus Christ. And I guess I would, under, I, I would explain it this way for us to under, better understand. We all remember uh, back in, in 1988, it's not that long ago, there, there was a, a terrorist that blew up a 747, a Pan Am jet, over Lockerbie, Scotland. And, and the images there on the news, the cockpit laying on the ground and the, uh, sadly the blankets draped over the windows of the cockpit and all and just devastating, you know, illustrating the horror that happened. 270 people lost their lives because a terrorist decided to blow up a 747 on its way to LAX from, from Europe. And, and what happened was that you had, uh, you had like, I don't know, nine people, 11 people, something like that, that were killed on the ground, and the rest of them in the plane, and, and it was so tragic because a lot of it, it happened right before Christmas. They're coming home for the Christmas holiday, so you got entire families that are wiped out, lots of kids on this flight, and, and the, the, the 270 people killed. Now, the terrorist who masterminded this, he wasn't imprisoned until 2001. And that's bad enough. That, they, that, they, that he ran free for so long. But he was only in jail for eight years until he got out. A Scottish judge decided to give him what's known as a compassionate release. Why? Because he had prostate cancer. So, oh, we'll give him compassion and we'll let him go. And, and if you're a family member, you're like, that, there is, that is absolutely an injustice right there. Where was his compassion when my loved one fell 38,000 feet to their death? Like, you know, that, that, there's no compassion in what he did, but yet he's going to get cancer and we're going to let him go. And it made it even worse. You watch the news headlines of him arriving home in Libya and they greet him like a hero. He gets off the plane with che- crowds cheering. So, so this is a horrible injustice. Now, our world is filled with horrible injustices. Thing, stories like this abound. And if you doubt that, not that it's possible, but if you were to be able to talk to the 1.5 billion children who have literally been ripped limb from limb from their mother's womb, they would tell you that the, the injustices abound in this world. And so what, that is what makes this a marvelous sign. 
Because what's marvelous about it is that these plagues are going to not only bring forth God's righteous justice, that his righteous justice is served, but also that his righteous rule is going to be restored. That in a world where injustice abounds, hey, after God pours out his wrath, not only is this righteous uh, justice going to be served, but it's going to usher in the millennial rule of Jesus Christ where it will be completely righteous and there will not be any situation or circumstance where you say "That's, that's not right, that's an injustice. It won't be that way. Now, this is what we see in these following verses. Revelation 15, verse 2. We continue. John says, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. So he's talking about those who have had victory over the beast. Now, when we were in Revelation 13, we saw that the, the Antichrist uh, is, is worshipped. There's an image that's set up for him and the false prophet and he, the Antichrist and the false prophet, everybody urging the dwellers on the earth to worship the image of the, of the beast, urging everybody to take the, the mark of the number of his name. And, and what this is, it's a, it's a mark of allegiance. It's a step of, of worship. It's a, it's a matter of the world choosing between the righteous God and the, the wicked Antichrist, and the world has chosen to reject God and rather to worship Antichrist. Well, the view that we have here is those that have said, no, we are not going to, to reject God. We are, in fact, going to worship God. We are going to hold fast to God. And, and so we see here um, that that this sea of glass mingled with fire and those who have had victory over the beast and so on, they're standing on the sea of glass. Now we saw this sea of glass, first of all, in Revelation chapter 4. And we saw there that it corresponds, geographically in the temple there, it corresponds with the temple on earth and in that same place where the sea of glass is in, in heaven, well, this is where the, la- the, the laver in the temple was. The laver was the place where the priest would wash his hands ceremonially so that would make him clean before the throne of God. And, and what we have there is we have a picture of God's word that cleanses us. That's the picture. It's a picture of God's word that cleanses us. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, Paul says there that Jesus cleanses his church and sets his church apart for himself, sanctifies his church through the washing with water. And, and so this is the idea, the water of the word of God set apart. So these people here, we see them, they have reje- they've been able to overcome to reject and to stand against the Antichrist and to take their stand for God. Well, how do they do that? Romans 12, 2, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If you've studied this, you know that word conformed means to be pressed into a mold, that the world wants you to get pressed into its mold. And, and he says, and Paul says, no, 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 don't let the world press you into its mold. Rather, hey, be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. The implication is by the word of God. 
that, that the, the thing, the lies that the world would tell you, that your satanic flesh would tell you, that satanic influence in your life would tell you that, no, you take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and you set your course by the word of God and it's the renewing of your mind that's going to transform you. <coughs> Paul will go on to tell the, the, the Romans, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, with that in mind, I want you to take note, where do we find those who have victory over the beast here in verse 2? We find them standing on the sea of glass, standing on the word. And and this, this sea of God's word is that thing that cleanses us and delivers us. And then we have the added detail that's added here in Revelation 15 too, that this sea of glass is mingled with fire. Here's what you need to understand. Revelation is, is based on visions that God gives. And these visions are truths that are, that, are, that are told to us by pictures. It's been said, a picture says a thousand words. And so you have these pictures, and so we read through them, and we go, well, I need to understand this. I had a conversation with a gal this morning. She was talking about how difficult it is to understand the book of Revelation. And, and truly, there are aspects of this where a vision is given where it's, it's difficult on the face of it to be able to wade through and go, what does this mean? But when you study God's word and you take these pictures and you compare them with, the, with what we have in God's word, the picture begins to be developed. Um, and, and so what's developed here is you have the sea of glass, it's mingled with fire, and it's a picture of the power of the, the water of God's word to both deliver the saints and as well to destroy the wicked. That's what we're seeing here. The power of God's word to deliver the saints and yet at the same time simultaneously to destroy the wicked. That's exactly what we're going to see here as these verses unfold. And we see it throughout the Bible, throughout the scriptures. You've got this, this picture of the power of the water of God's word delivering the saints and then destroying the wicked. Take, a, take a, a glance at Noah and the flood. What happens? You've got Noah and his family... What are they, you know, metaphorically, picture-wise, they're saved through the floodwaters, literally saved through the floodwaters, but for the unrepentant on the earth, what happens? Those same floodwaters are what deliver judgment. In baptism, you go under the water, right? And going under the water is symbolic of your flesh being put to death. And then from that same water, you rise up, and now it's symbolic of newness of life. It's the, it's, the, it's the physical picture of what we do in our faith in that we understand we are all sinners by nature and choice. That's what the Bible teaches. All of sin falls short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If, if we will believe that he's the Christ and if we will, we will confess that we're sinners and we place our faith in him, we believe that he's the Christ, the son of the living God who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead, the Bible says we will be saved. And so what happens then is, you know, the Bible says that, that Jesus, he who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, our sins put upon him, he died, buried, rose again, and now we, by placing our faith in him, we get saved. So baptism is that example. Hey, I go into the water, I'm identifying with Christ's death and burial. I come up out of the water, I'm identifying with his resurrection. I'm telling the whole world, that's what I believe in, that's where my hope is, that's where my faith is. And so we have that as an example. 
But the best example of what we see here in Revelation chapter 15 is the Israelites in, in the Exodus. Because what you have is the Israelites, as they were delivered by God from Egypt, which is a picture of bondage to sin. They're delivered by, Egypt, by God out of Egypt, and they're, God is now bringing them into the promised land. And what happens is Pharaoh sends his troops out after them. And so you've got the Egyptian army on their heels. And what does God do to deliver them from Egypt? Ultimately, he takes them through the Red Sea. And they safely delivered through the sea to the other side. But what happens to the pursuing Egyptian army? They are drowned in the sea. And so what happens then as God delivers them, you see them come through the Red Sea. They're there on the other side. You're in Exodus 15 looking at all this. And you see them standing on the far shore of the Red Sea. And what do they do there? They sing the song of Moses. And that's exactly what they do here in the very next verse. They, here is the, the, these multitudes, right? The sea of glass mingled with fire. Those who've had victory over the beast, over, over his image, over his mark, and the number of his names, they're standing on the sea of glass. They're having harps of God. Here it is, verse 3. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, they go on now. It says saying, and we're going to go through the lyrics. <coughs> the lyrics that we read now... These are the lyrics of the Song of the Lamb, which, by the way, is the last recorded worship song in Scripture. And so right now here we have the last recorded worship song in Scripture. It is the Song of the Lamb. Here's the lyrics to the Song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you for your judgments have been manifested. And so, so this is the song of the Lamb that they are singing, the last recorded song in the Bible. And these lyrics we have, they're proclaiming God's great and marvelous works, his pure and his holy nature, his worthiness to be worshipped as our king, and the, the certainty of his coming just uh, of his coming and, and the justness of his coming and, and, and the righteous judgment that he's coming with to judge those who reject him. And so the, this is the, the, the theme, the flavor of the worship song of the Lamb, right? But also they sang the, the song of Moses. And the song of Moses is the first recorded song in the Bible. So they sang the first recorded song in the Bible, they sing the Song of the Lamb, the last recorded song in the Bible. Now, what you don't have here are the, uh, are the lyrics of the Song of Moses, but we, we get them from Exodus chapter 15. And it covers many, many verses. I'm going to just put the first two uh, on the, the screen for you, and then I'll put a couple of verses of the refrain up there for you to get the flavor of the song. Here's the Song of Moses. Exodus 15, beginning in verse 1, Then Moses and the children of Israel, then, after God delivered them through the Red Sea, and destroyed all of the Egyptian army, their enemies in the Red Sea. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord, and they spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed victoriously or gloriously. The, the horse and its rider he is thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He's my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And then the song continues with this refrain. 
uh, several verses later. They say, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them to, uh, in your strength to your holy habitation. Now listen, get the theme of both songs. This is what you got to understand, what you have to pick up on. The theme of both songs. There's, there's, there's two side-by-side truths as one truth that is the theme with these two side-by-side truths linked together. Here they are. The first side of that truth is, listen, God is faithful to deliver his saints. And the second side of that truth is God is faithful to judge the wicked. That's what the theme of these songs are. God's faithful to deliver the the saints and he's faithful to judge the wicked. I'm just going to go off on a tangent for half a second, just the verses of the song. I'll come right back to to that side-by-side theme. But but, uh, here's the thing to notice as you look at these verses of of the Song of the Lamb or the Song of Moses. They are all God-centered. They are all directed at the Lord. You see, one, this, is, this is a personal irritation of mine. Um, I'll just put that caveat out there, that, that, that disclaimer. When we worship the Lord, there are, there are songs that I call pledge songs, worship songs that are pledge songs. That you all recognize the pledge song. This, is, this is kind of comes across as a love song to God, you know. Oh, I love you. You're amazing. I'll, I'll worship you all my life. You know, where you go, I'll go. You know, and all this stuff. And, and that's cool. It is. I mean, it's fine to sing those songs. I mean, we sing some of those songs, and it's fine. But what I find myself doing in my heart, when it's a pledge song, I find myself changing the lyrics as I sing them. And so in those parts where, you know, you might sing according to the written song, I'll follow you all the days of my life. What I, what I sing on purpose is, Lord, help me to follow you all the days of my life. Why? Because I know that I, I don't care what I pledge. I don't care how much I mean it. I'm not going to follow you all the days of my life. There's some days when I'm going to go off on my own way and be stupid because as it turns out, I'm stuck on stupid. And so I do stupid things. And so the thing is, is that what I love about these verses is they're not pledge songs. They're songs that just say, God, you're amazing. And by implication, I'm not. You're awesome, God. You're faithful. All day long, I can trust you. See, we need to focus on that in the way that we live out our faith because so often we get caught up in the religious rap and in the religious trap of the do-good, the try-harder attitude. That, that uh, you know, if I, I got I to do good for God to rightly relate to me. Yes, we should do good, but we do good because he is good to us. And we have to relate to him on the basis of his goodness, not on the basis of my pledge. Okay? God, you're good. God, you're faithful. God, you destroy your enemies. And all I can be left with is to worship you and to say, God, you demonstrate your own love in this, that while Ted is yet a sinner, Jesus, you died for Ted. Thank you, God. Thank you for your love for me. And it's his kindness that leads us to repentance when we live a life of worshiping him in that way. Well, yeah, we, I don't want you to misunderstand me. Yes, we should be living a life of pledge to God. We should be doing what we can to, to, to do good and to try harder. 
But the whole relationship is predicated on this foundational attitude. God, you're good. You're faithful. You're true. You're just. You're righteous. And I'm none of those things. And I thank you for that. And yes, because of that, I want to serve you. But it all comes from this place of, God, you are so good. And so what we have here, this theme, hey, God's faithfulness to deliver his saints. Simultaneously, God is faithful to judge the wicked. Now hold that thought. And we read these last few verses. And then we tie it up. Verse 5, After these things I, John, looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. And then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. My, my wife, I, I, uh, I made her buy a $200 couch a few years ago um, because I'm cheap and I didn't want to spend money on a couch. So I made her buy this couch and I'm like, look, I don't want to, uh, you'll get a nicer one when the dog dies or whatever, but uh, you know, for now this is what you get. So just the other day, I broke down, and we got rid of the $200 couch, and I bought her a Pottery Barn couch. Ladies, you know, right? Like, I did, you did good, Ted, right? So, so she's sitting on her couch last night, and I brought her a cup of tea. And as I'm bringing her a cup of tea, as she's sitting on her couch, I have this thought of these, these angels with these bowls. It's like, I don't want to spill a single drop man, of this tea on this Pottery Barn couch. And here they are. That's the thought that comes to my mind. Totally unbiblical, but it's the thought that comes to my mind that you've got these, the, the one of the four living creatures gives to the seven angels the bowl filled with the wrath of God. It's like, I don't want to spill a drop of this up here. I, this was all better wind up on the earth because this is bad, you know? <laughs> Verse eight. And so uh, the, the temple was filled with the, with the smoke from the glory of God. It smoke's always this, this picture of the presence of God. So the temple is filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. And, and so what happens here, that word completed, by the way, if you're given to take a note, you could circle it. Nearby, you could write, to bring to an end. And the attitude here is not nearly bringing something to where you terminate it. No, it's, it's carrying it out to the full. You bring it to an end, you carry it out to the full. Same word there that's used back in the beginning in verse 1 to describe these bowls of wrath. The, the idea is it's carried out to the full. I'll describe it this way. God's wrath is getting carried out to the full. Do you remember during the Gulf War, the first Gulf War? Iraq invaded Kuwait, and bad things were happening. Not only had they invaded Kuwait, and it was full-on just a treasure grab. They invaded Kuwait for their oil, and their soldiers, as they went in, they were doing horrible things. They're raping women. They're killing, literally killing babies in incubators in the hospital, unplugging the incubators, letting kids die, doing bad things. The world stepped up and said, we're not going to let you do that. And so we had this huge coalition of forces led by the United States to go kick Saddam Hussein's forces out of Kuwait. And so when they did that, when they went into Kuwait, they rolled down Highway 80, which is a highway that leads directly from Iraq to Kuwait. Well, once they met with our coalition forces attacking them, they started to retreat. And so you had his revolutionary guard 
on Highway 80, it became known as the Highway of Death, as they're trying to, uh, to retreat. And we had one evening in particular where the coalition aircraft hit 2,000 vehicles and turned them into burning charred wrecks with all of the troops with them. And they, they started calling it the Highway of Death. First Iraq war, by the way, first time when we had modern warfare in real time. You know, in, in Vietnam, we had correspondents that would send back reports, but they were weeks or sometimes months old. CNN, it was right now. So the world's looking on, and we in the States, we're looking on, and we see this highway of death. We see 2,000 burned-out vehicles and the carnage that is there. And most people had the thought that, yeah, if you're going to be a baby killer, then that's what you got coming to you, and just wait till tomorrow because we're going to finish you off tomorrow and we're going to conquer Iraq. Well, President Bush didn't do that. He said, look, my mandate is not to conquer Iraq. My mandate is to get Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, and we've accomplished that. And so what he did is he published, or he called a cessation of hostilities, and he said, we're all done here. Now, a lot of people were angry because they said Saddam Hussein was not removed from power. He said, that's not the mandate that I had. Legally, I I wasn't authorized to remove him from power. Well, his son ended up going and, uh, and affecting that work later on. But, the, but the, my point in saying that is that you, you have this cessation of hostilities from what was this carnage. And what we're reading about here in Revelation chapter 15, God ain't taking his foot off the gas. He's not calling a cessation of hostilities. No, what God is about to do is going to make the highway of death look like a walk in the park. It's going to look like a tea party on a Sunday afternoon compared to the wrath of God that's going to be poured out by these seven bowls of wrath. And and, and here's the deal. We have to understand that, that the whole idea here is this token of the future that's given. This is what we got to focus on. Henry Ironside said this. He said, God has given us these revelations out of his kindness to us so that we might be warned, and I add, by these tokens of the future that we have to avoid what lies ahead of this guilty world. Here's the thing. Ironside says this. Look, God's given to us this picture, Revelation 15, to warn the entire world. Look, this is what's coming down. The highway of death is in your future. And, and, and here's the thing. As we come to the communion table, as we wrap this all up, as we draw this message to the close, there's a couple of significant points of application for us. Number one, the application is obvious if you are outside of the saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you, if you have never trusted your life to the Lordship of Christ, you need to understand that right now the world is trying to press you into its mold. And if you allow the world to press you into its mold, and if you reject Jesus Christ, then a day is coming when the wrath of God will be poured out full measure on this earth. And when you will face the wrath of God. Listen, you may not even live long enough to go through this tribulation period, but if you die outside of a saving faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible promises that you will be judged by your works. You do not want to be judged by your works. Because the Bible says that even our best works is as filthy rags to God. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. You do not want to be judged by your works. 
Even if you think, man, I, I, you know, I, I'm good. I should get into heaven because, you know, I, I keep the Ten Commandments. No, you don't. You don't even know the Ten Commandments. I should get into the, to, to heaven because, you know, I'm not a murderer. Because, because I, you know, I, I'm, I'm on the, God's got to judge on the scale. I'm, I'm a decent guy. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a good person. There are no good people. The Bible says all have sinned. And so, so that's the first application. And if you're here today and if you fit the criteria of, of, of that, that you, have not, you cannot remember a conscious time when you have said, I, Jesus, I believe that you're the Son of God, I believe that you're the Savior, and I surrender my life to you. If you've never done that, if you can't remember a time you've done that, I'll give you an invitation today to do that. Second application, though, and this applies to most of us here in this room. Look, if we believe this is true, and if we say, yes, there is a time coming when God is going to judge sin and that those who, who are redeemed by Christ are going to be spared from that, then there's no excuse every last one of us here should be those who bring the gospel to the lost. There's people you work with. There's people in your family. There's people you live next door to who are going to hell. And God's put them in your life. And, and if you care about them, well, Penn and Teller, I forget which, if it's Penn or if it's Teller, one of those dudes, he's, he's an atheist, but he said this. I'm going to paraphrase this quote because it just comes to my mind. But he, as an atheist, he said, look, if, if a Christian shares their faith with me, I don't mind it because they really believe that that's true. What kind of an animal would that person be if they truly believed that and they didn't tell me? about Christ. This is an atheist talking. It's an accurate description. What kind of an animal are we? What kind of an unloving person are we if we believe this is true and we do nothing to tell anybody else that the highway of death is coming? 